This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow White. Thank you for giving me your undivided attention for the next hour or so. My name is Rob Snow White. That is my real last name. It's the end of June 2023 and the smoke from Canada has finally cleared, but now we're getting rainstorms. It really hasn't rained since Jason left town way back during the Shad Run and it's been extremely dry. There really wasn't any rain from late April until late June. We didn't get our first striper until late June either. It's another kind of weird thing for this year. So I'm expecting a huge thunderstorm tonight and we may be cut off if electricity goes or who knows what's going to happen. And if you've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, it's basically my documentation of the weather and weather patterns across Northern Virginia for the last 15 something years now. So this podcast, I got the idea to do this after the last Beer Tie. Beer Tie is a monthly event. I guess you could say I host it, organize them. It is my local International Federation of Fly Fishers chapters monthly meeting. It's a bunch of people getting together at a bar and we tie flies and eat dinner and hang out and have a couple drinks if you want. And we've been doing it now since about 2009 or 2010. And I've been teaching the monthly classes now for well over a decade. And there's some things I've learned from teaching people to tie flies at my house, teaching them at the bar, maybe at a special event where there's fly tying going on. If you've been tying flies for years, you might, you might want to skip over this. But these are, are my views from the teacher seat that may help you 
And I'm gonna give advice for you as the tire, and then for someone like me that is the teacher. The students are gonna be in front of you and I'm gonna try and go over what I do. And the beer tie before lockdown probably had 80 plus people. It was a huge monthly event. It was one of the highlights of the month for me, was going into Arlington and seeing all these people and the cool thing about TPFR, Tidal Potomac Fly Rotters, it's based in DC and people come and go for education and employment or deployment. So constantly there's new people coming and, and old people going and there have been people that have been there since day one, but you get to teach different people. And I have taught several dozen people times 12 months times like 14 years I've taught a lot of people how to tie flies and it's mostly been at a dimly lit bar on a budget with perforated or small tables. So that's where this came from and yeah, we're gonna talk about fly tying today. But first, I talked about how you shouldn't let your dog go fishing with you. If you didn't listen to that podcast, this was the gist. When you put flea and tick killer on the back of your dog, there's enough insecticide to kill 60 plus million, that's with an M, 60 plus million bees. So when that dog goes into the water, it's releasing insecticides into the water, and that's gonna kill all the macro microinvertebrates downstream from where your dog is playing. And this is the basis for the food chain for the trout and other things you wanna be fishing for. So another thing you may have been hearing in the news is there's a lot of lawsuits recently about fire retardants being used at airports. So airports have to practice putting out fires and they're gonna do this way off to the side, the corner where people are not gonna see smoke and fire engines and other things happening while they're going to get on the airplanes. So it may be off near a, a piece of water. Now Dulles Airport is one near us that's built on a swamp. I know because I used to supervise parking lot construction there and about three to four feet down, it's all water. National Airport in DC is built on the river on basically garbage and rubble piled up along the shore. Both very large airports and if they're going to be putting out fires and practicing that, all those chemicals get stuck on the runway and then when it rains it gets into the groundwater and gets into your streams. So avoid doing some trout fishing around airports where they practice things. That's all I want to say about that and if you just google airport lawsuits forever chemicals it's going to be everywhere if you did a google search and asked your location it would probably tell one near you so now let's go to some fly tying mistakes that you may be making as a novice or experienced tire i may change the way you do things i don't know a lot of this is advice i've been given by other people and i've been going over the last week or so just writing down bullet points when i can so we'll call this part one of the podcast uh, then we're going to do teaching uh, novices, novice teachers. So let's start off. This is somewhat in alphabetical order. And if things get repeated, don't blame me. I'm just a podcaster. A game changer is not that hard to tie. This one started first because the letter is A. Something difficult to tie won't be the first thing you're doing. A game changer is just three to four shanks wrapped from left to right connected with the hook on the front. It's simple, I just tied two of them and it maybe took five minutes each. They're not pretty because again, you're tying indoors, remember this, and when you go outside and wet your fly, it's a completely different organism. So when you're tying in a bar, in your kitchen, in your basement, 
just be conscious that it's not going to look like this unless it's a floating dry fly. Most things that get wet change color, change shape, change behavior. Mistakes in flies will get covered up. The fish won't see them. So I didn't spend a whole lot of time making these meticulous game changers for Burke Lake on Thursday. Uh, I did them to get the job done. It's not that hard. It's just three naked woolly buggers tied together and then a hook. All I did was put on a piece of ultra suede tail on the back shank, three wraps of Turkish knitting yarn, lashed down the second shank to the first one, wrapped up Turkish knitting yarn, put on a size two Dairiki hook, dumbbell eyes, lashed down some monofilament, looped the shank on from the two previous connected ones, wrapped that down, put some of that Turkish knitting yarn on, wrapped it up to the bead eyes, knotted it and cut it, and that was it. I already mentioned bad lighting. So if you're gonna tie indoors, have good overhead lighting. Again, when I was a young lad in a fly shop, all the older gentlemen told me it would be my eyes in a couple of years, and it is now my eyes. I can't see as well as I used to, and I never believed them. So young tires, just heads up, you're gonna have trouble seeing things, and you're gonna need bright light. So I suggest you get an overhead LED light. I've got a tube light that goes over my desk and it is crazy bright. It's like Clark Griswold's house on Christmas. It's extremely bright. There's no shadows in that tying room. For traveling and going to beer tie, I have a portable LED lamp with five different colors and five brightnesses and I can charge my phone off of it and it just plugs in with a USB-C. I take that to the hockey rink when my well, ice rink, my daughter figure skates. When she's over there and there's poor lighting in the lobby, that's what I do to read all evening. I take it around with me, it doesn't take up much space. If you're traveling to tie flies, do that. If you're going to the bar to tie flies, get yourself a bright light, because I guarantee you, you know, they don't have bright lights in a bar. So that's the whole purpose of bars, is not to see how ugly people are when you're drinking. It's the end of the night when they click the light on, the bright fly tying light, we call those the ugly lights because it shows people for what they really look like. You wanna be tying during the ugly lights. So when I get to Colony Grill to set up once a month, the first thing I do is I go turn on all those lights and then I unpack and put my light on. Bead, eye, side. So when you're gonna put a bead on a fly, you should always be using beads on nymphs and woolly buggers, your wet flies in general, because it prevents you from crowding and wrapping over the eye of the hook. It's just a general dead end for your thread to go to where you can't do damage in the front. There's a little hole and a big hole, and you wanna put the hook through the little hole. What I do is I put them in the palm of my hand, and they go down to the center, right where your friend would spit and say that's where the pool was when they would draw your house your future house in your hand, and you wanna just move it around until the little one is up, then you put the hook through it, the hook point, and then just turn your wrist 180 and the bead will go on. Your beads are gonna roll off places, so don't just dump them on your desk. And if they start rolling and they fall off, you wanna be like Rain Man and be able to count them all so you don't lose them. Same for hooks. Slotted beads are different, and I don't really use slotted beads. I've learned through my tying that most beads just roll down and sit right in a certain spot and there's so many macro micro currents and variables in the water anyway that 
the bead placement isn't really causing that fly to move one way or the other. It's just caught in the wind. It looks like if you've got a tanker airplane and then behind it you've got the hose and that nozzle for a helicopter or fighter jet to fill up in, that thing is just flapping in the wind and your fly is doing that underneath. If you do put a slotted bead on, make sure you put it on the right way, otherwise it's gonna cover the hook. Use a bead and hook chart when you're buying them. Don't buy things you don't need. Don't go into your hobby craft shop and just start buying things because they look like fly tying materials. A lot of that stuff, and I'm gonna probably repeat myself later, is that those things are not the same as fly shop materials. They may get waterlogged, they may not hold together, the colors might run. There are some you know, yarns, and I have a whole podcast on what you can get at a craft store, but it's not always what you're trying to achieve and you may just be shooting yourself in the foot. Don't go into the fly shop and just start randomly being like, I want that hackle, I want moose hair, um, I want a rabbit's foot, a deer mask, uh, pink marabou, um, I want an orange Lady Amherst, I want that red sparkle done. Uh, just You can't do that. It's like going into the grocery store hungry and you just buy a bunch of random ingredients. You need to be consistent and shop by the pattern. Now, if you see something that's really cool, buy it. If you see something on clearance, buy it. You might not know when you're gonna need things, and I had boxes of that stuff, and when I got divorced, I gave it away. I don't even remember who the dude was. I think it was someone on Twitter who just came by and picked up two huge boxes of thousands of dollars worth of stuff. But you, you will eventually have to clean out. I have things from when I walked into Angler's Lie in 1994 in Arlington and bought lead wire and a hackle from Grizzly. I still have the original materials from when I was a junior in high school. So don't be going in and just buying random things. You're gonna not save money by doing this. You're not gonna know how to store it all and it's just gonna be chaos. So start with the basics and I'll talk about those later with the patterns I usually teach. Uh, don't be careless when you're cutting materials. You want to be consistent, you want to be clean, and you don't want to waste things. So when you're gonna cut, don't just grab the middle of a feather or zonker and just cut. Don't grab synthetic flash in the middle or three quarters of the way down and just cut a chunk out. You want to make sure every cut is consistent to what you're doing and you're not wasting materials. If you cut something in the wrong spot, feathers, mostly natural materials are just not going to work right. They have a natural taper and shape to them. Synthetics you can cut randomly, but you don't want to have this butchered looking hank of material because it's going to screw up your time in the future. You want to make sure you're just cutting in the right locations. And I have YouTube videos where you can see where I mark my materials with a Sharpie of where I'm going to cut them or I only open the package a certain amount. You just want to be careful where you're cutting things. When I teach at the bar, I'm very hesitant to bring nice things because people just cut it right in the middle. And I just sit there like, uh, oh my God, you just did not. It's just got to be consistent. You got to be careful and keep it clean with clean, sharp scissors. 
clouds or eye tension. Probably one of the biggest things I have to teach. And when I teach tying clouds or eyes, I teach using large dumbbells versus lead or brass dumbbells because the gap between the two dumbbell eyes is thinner and sits on a hook. Every time you wrap, you need to put tension on that piece of metal that's going over your hook perpendicular. You need to wrap over and pull down and then as you're coming back up, you need to do it. If your clouser dumbbell eyes are rotating at any point or going left and right, your fly is probably gonna fall apart. It's not gonna have the right action. If you hit anything, those threads are gonna just loosen up as that metal hits back and forth and it's just gonna be a lousy fly. You need to add tension. One way of doing that is to get yourself a bobbin that has tension built into it. I use the right bobbin. My standard handheld favorite bobbins are by Griffin. And if your thread is too loose, just take the bobbin spool out, wrap it around the arm of the spool once or twice, and that will give you a little more tension. If those eyes are wobbly, I've got to sit there and work with you and you're holding everyone up, man. So, you know, get that tension on, work on it, practice it. And if you can move your vise or if your thread breaks, you know you're using enough tension. If it's just constant loose wraps, it's just going to sit there all day. It doesn't matter how many times you wrap it. It's just going to be a whole spool in one spot. Now, the clouds or eye position is another thing. Some people put them way too close to the eye of the hook and some people put them way back near the bend. I'm going to go over the anatomy of a hook because you need to explain these to people when you're teaching them and when you're learning you need to know when someone says like a quarter inch back from the eye of the hook. I should say the length of the dumbbell eye is usually an indicator if you put that right behind the eye of the hook you don't want to put it in anywhere in that space. You know like one quarter of the hook shank back from the eye. If you don't put them in the right spot, you may not get the desired effect of that fly. The jigging action, or maybe you want a fly to land and sit like a crayfish with its claws up or a jig with rabbit strips. It depends on where you want them. But if you're tying a clouser dumbbell, you have to tie that about you know three quarters back sometimes, depending on the hook. Don't crowd the eye. You just don't want to wrap up and around it. Sometimes you're going to have to push the thread back. I did that once. My finger went through the hook and uh, I had to go to the hospital and have it taken out because it was barbed. I don't even tie that pattern anymore. It was like a curly tailed something or other, but they, they were good for largemouth. That also had knitting yarn, but it wasn't Turkish. It was made by uh, Barocco. And one trick you can do is just put a cigarette lighter near it or you know like a hot match on the waxy thread if it's got wax in it and it'll kind of melt it and push it back but if you wrap up in the front of your fly numerous times in the wrong places it's eventually going to go forward and you're going to cover the eye of the hook and then you're just not going to be able to fish it or it's just going to slide over the eye and start to unravel so you need to be very specific and clean with those wraps in the front. I also want you to be consistent when you're wrapping thread and wire. If you're making something like a brassy or a copper john, you shouldn't be doing a copper john to begin with if you're a novice. But you want each wrap next to it. You don't want space in between 
thumbnails and fingernails will help push the material together. But I want you to be consistent. Don't wrap here. And then the next one, it's at a 45 degree angle. And then the next one's perpendicular to the hook. You want them clean and consistent like a segmented organism the way you perceive it to be. When it's in the water, it's wriggling and writhing around and inconsistency is probably better. But when you're at the table tying, you want to be consistent. Wrapping thread in the same place, wrapping it the same tension, all of these things need to be consistent. Watch the person who's teaching you hold the bobbin. You're just going to watch the hook and the fly. Watch the hand that's holding their bobbin. See how it's like stick shifting with a car. You're, you're looking at the steering wheel when they're driving, not the stick shift. All that stuff is going on behind the scenes that you're not paying attention to. Don't buy a rainbow selection of threads. You don't need to go to the fly shop and get chartreuse, pink, white, uh, rusty brown, some kind of pale morning done, black, green. Just be consistent with your brand and model of thread. Get comfortable using it. I tie 85% of what I'm doing in black and then the rest is pretty much chartreuse. I use red for just my damsels. That's about it. I really only use two colors. And then in the springtime, I use a lot of pink for shad flies or for steelhead. But don't just go out and buy 30 spools of thread. What are you gonna do with them? Where are you gonna store them? They may be the wrong size, the wrong make, the wrong model, the wrong tension, and now you've got 20 spools of thread. Look over here. I'm gonna get up for a second. I know you can't see this, but I thought I accidentally bought a hoodie from a company. This right here is what, this is what a pound of Maribou sounds like. You know what a pound of Maribou costs? You don't want to know what a pound of Maribou costs, but I have a whole pound of black Maribou and it's in the same size Ziploc bag that I would store a lasagna in. And I got this by mistake. Uh, Hopefully, the company I bought it from is going to be generous, and I'm going to have to ship it back to them tomorrow. Yeah, if you buy things, you might be stuck with them. Don't buy the cheapest of whatever you're getting. Don't get the cheapest dubbing twister. There are little itty-bitty hook-shaped ones that suck. Yeah, they're three bucks. Go with the OPST Olympic Peninsula Skagit Tactic one. It's like 25 bucks. It's heavy and it just has this momentum and it's gonna get the job done for you. Don't buy the cheapest scissors. Don't get the cheapest threads. Some things you need to spend money on. Don't get that $19 vise that you found at Marshall's. I'm sure you could tie great flies on it, but eh, I mean, let's be honest. Those things fall apart fairly easy. I've got parts of them in the fly tying kit for beer tie from over the years of all the cheap knockoff vices that have fallen apart. I bring three regals a month with me when I do this. Uh, I went from using a Griffin rotary to a Ronzetti traveler to a pedestal and clamp regal. And I've been using the regal now for 18 years. I can't tell you how many flies have been tied on those things. And again, if your jaws are a little tight on your Regal, a little squirt of WD-40 in there and then paper towel it off, you're good to go. So don't buy cheap stuff. That's usually going to apply to when you're going out to the thrift stores and dollar stores and flea markets. Don't buy a cheap bag of feathers at a flea market because it looks like a good deal. It's 
probably full of bugs and half eaten and rotten. Don't put your scissors down. That's something that this guy William taught me when I worked at Orvis and Tyson's in 1999 in the summer. When I, it's about this time of year, like June 99 is when I started working there. And I was tying with William one night and you said, don't put your scissors down. And I've been telling you about that on the podcast and telling you about that at beer tie for years now. If they're in your hand, you don't have to look for them. I'm at the point now where most flies I tie, if my hand is naked without scissors, it doesn't feel right. I need that weight. And it's the weight of the loons and the weight of the Pat Cohen scissors that make me feel right. Um, and I'm doing that with my hand right now as if I'm holding scissors. And I just noticed my hands are like black from this bag of marabou. If you want to buy a bag of marabou, you better get a hold of me quickly. I'll sell it to you. That, I mean, that could be a pillow, honestly. This thing is huge. It is. Yeah, this thing is big. Don't waste thread. That's one of the simplest things. Eventually, you're going to be tying a fly, and that spool of thread you bought three years ago might run out, and you're going to not know what to do. A lot of people just wrap and wrap and wrap. I say start your thread. This is how you do it. You, you take your thread in one hand, and you pinch it to the hook with your left hand. The right hand holds the bobbin. You're going to wrap over and go to the left and cover up the tag end. You're holding. Cut it off. Your fly is started. Some people will do 60, 70 wraps into it, and then that could catch a fish already, just a thread-wrapped hook. You don't wanna start with several inches of that tag end sticking out. So when you do pinch that piece of thread to the hook with your left hand, that piece of thread shouldn't be dangling down to your elbows. It should be maybe a centimeter or smaller sticking out because eventually you are going to go through it all. Fewest ingredients, only what you need. That is what we're going to get a quote from Walter Weesey from Parks Fly Shop out in Montana, where he had these five sayings. It's, it's only what you need. Put in a fly. You don't need googly eyes on top of things. You don't need whiskers and cute noses on mice patterns. You don't need to make a fly that is a Rube Goldberg machine to catch fish. Look at original flies tied out of rooster feathers, and sheep yarn from Europe from 2000 years ago. They caught fish. That fly will catch fish now. You don't need to articulate it. You don't need six types of flash. You don't need mallard plus wood duck plus guinea fowl plus ostrich. Simplify it. A good woolly bugger only has three materials in it. A killer bug has two materials. A thread midge has one material in it. So don't go out and start trying to tie something. It's like trying to make a plate with a bunch of garnish on it. The more ingredients you put in it, the more expensive that dinner plate gets. And that fly is gonna just cost you a whole lot. And then you're gonna lose it on your first cast. You're gonna be pissed. Only add what you need. Follow the recipes. Fish don't know what's on top of the fly. I can tell you that that airplane that flies over every 60 seconds, I don't know what the top of the plane looks like. And then my sandwich today, it was fantastic. It was mortadella, roast chicken, a little mayo, a little bit of that onion dressing, white onions, iceberg lettuce, both shredded on the mandolin. It was fantastic. And uh, I don't know what the bottom of that piece of bread looked like. Don't be so concerned with making your bug look exactly what you think an intelligent fish would think it is. Don't go for mimicking every part of the bug. 
keep it simple and remember that wet flies get seen from 360 degrees dry flies get seen from just the bottom learn to half hitch with your hand instead of using a knot tool it took me years to figure out how to use a Mataroli whip finisher I the first time I, I learned to tie a fly which was just holding a hook and a pair of pliers between my thighs and wrapping thread on it I just figured it out with my index finger my left hand and I don't ever have to look for a knot tying tool unless it's a small fly and I want a clean tiny knot to half hitch and you only have one left hand and you have one right hand and when I have to say use your other left hand it's because you're just not thinking left and right when you're tying with me you're going to pull the bobbin down with your left hand and hold it it should be about table level and you're going to take your right index finger and you're going to touch that thread and you're just going to give it a wet willy you're going to twist your finger two to three times it's going to get tight on your fingertip right where that first joint knuckle is put your fingernail over the eye of the hook and slide it down if it's got a bead you put it over the bead it's very simple to do and it will make your life easier because if you're the tire like me and there's stuff everywhere on your desk i have about six square inches of cleanness bareness on my desk of an entire dinner table covered in crap and i am losing things all the time so i don't want to use a knotting tool it's just something like the scissors you put down you got to find a lot of people don't place the hook correctly in the vise. The Regal has got a nice little U-shape on the inside that directs you where to put the hook. Some vices are just flat on the inside, but you want to have the bend of the hook in there with just a little bit of the point sticking out. Some people put them in upside down. Some people put the bend of the hook all the way in the vise and you cover up the hook point. That's gonna damage the hook point if you do that. Where you put the if you're using a regal and you put it in wrong you're going to damage your hook point so be mindful of that aesthetic of where the hook sits in the vise the vise is pointed and that curve kind of goes through it and i'm doing this with my hand and if my neighbor saw me they think i'm crazy keep your bobbin close to the vise i want you to make the tiniest circumference wraps you can i don't want you pulling out 10 inches of thread and going around it when you look like one of the guys from the three stooges and they're like with their knuckles going in a circle punching someone on the nose you want to have it super tight in and tiny little wraps because it's cleaner it's neater it's less work and when you have less thread out it's easier to manage keep the first fly you ever tie don't fish it if you fish it you're probably going to lose it i want you to catch a fish on it yeah but i also want you to save it so you can look at your progress i don't know if i have the first fly i ever tied but i still have flies i tied in high school by hand and then when i got my first vice and you can see how i just progressed and at some point my mind went a little more abstract and i went from only tying trout flies because that's what i read about as a kid to warm water and crazy potomac things like this turkish yarned fake tailed looking goby something for thursday know the anatomy of a hook i probably should have started off with this you can just google anatomy of a hook it's going to go from right to left and then we're going to go down and underneath so you're going to have the hook eye 
that's sort of new in the last couple hundred years. Having a hook I put on, that's what your thread goes through. Then the straight part that goes back from that is just going to be called the shank. So I'm going to give you directions between you're going to tie left to right up the shank or right to left down the shank. Instructions of to the eye or from the eye down. And then it's going to bend. The distance between the shank and the bottom of that bend is going to be called the gap. And then the tip of the point, you can call it a spear, a hook point, whatever. So I may say tie your thread right above the hook point only or right behind the eye of the hook only. If it helps, have a picture of this when your time flies. You've got this smartphone you're probably listening to me on. Look it up. That's a basic hook shank. And then you got fresh water, salt water, short shank, long shake, different types of bends, different types of gaps. It all gets very unique based on the fly you're tying, the weight of the hook, the mass of it. That's a whole lot of other stuff. So after you know the anatomy of a hook, you should know the anatomy of a feather. And I have this on probably my first blog post on how to tie the Snow White Damsel. You need to look at a feather and know which parts are what for the instructions on how it goes in and the direction. There are edges to it. There are tips and there's bases. The base is the hard keratinized part that was stuck into its skin. The tip is the exact opposite of it. It's the farthest away from the animal and it's usually very thin and light. Just like you know, a branch is gonna have heavier, bigger leaves at the base and bigger fruit, bigger flowers. As you get out to the tip, it's gonna be tapered and lighter. So know the parts because if I say grab the tip and cut it, grab the base and cut it, you need to know exactly the part. If I say tied in by the tip and you have the keratinized base tied in, it's just all backwards. So you need to know that. You need to know how to take your feather and trim off that keratinized base. Clean it up. Take off the first couple of dyed pieces that are white and then black on a black piece of marabou. I've got so much marabou in this bag right here. I can't even tell you what's what on them. This is ridiculous. I would like to know how many feathers are in here. We should see how many flies can be tied from one of these bags. It's, and this is just crazy. I mean, it's basically a squishamello of feathers. Know the parts of your feather and that's gonna allow you to tie it in correctly. Learn the curvature of a feather. You need to know if it's convex or concave because when you tie the tip in above the hook point, you need to wrap forward towards the hook eye up the shank. When you do that, if you tie it in the wrong direction, the feathers are gonna face forward, cup-shaped going up. The only fly I know that purposely does that is the Patuxent River Special. And other than having some in my basement, I haven't seen those things in a two dozen years. Most things you want the curvature to go back. When you watch me tie online, I usually point that out with like the bacon fly, is that you want the curvature. So if you're wrapping and it's going the wrong direction, unwrap and wrap it the opposite way and it should work. Don't wrap over the hackle fibers that you just wrapped down. And when you have synthetic materials, it doesn't really matter. Some of my scrub yarns will screw up depending on what direction you tie them in, but most of the stuff will tie in correctly. I want you to square off materials before you tie them in. I want all the tips lined up equally before you put that piece of material against your hook shank and start wrapping over it. I don't want it looking 
like you're drawing straws, like on the bottom of the drawn straws, how they're all different levels. I want them to be like the top where they're all lined up completely. It's gonna make a neater, cleaner fly. And if it's at the eye of the hook, it's gonna make it much easier. Example of this would be elk hair caddis. You're gonna cut that caddis hair. You're gonna put it in a hair stacker. You're gonna bang it on the table. And then you're gonna pull it out and you're gonna tie it in with all those cut pieces but they're gonna be uneven when you pull it out of the hair stacker. So you need to pinch it in your fingers and snip it nice and clean. It's like that movie with Chevy Chase. Pull them low and cut them high. Not enough tension. It's probably one of the biggest things that happens with a novice tire. You wrap and you wrap and you wrap and things are just going around the hook. They're loose. You're not giving enough tension. So I told you already, use a right bobbin. They're gonna be more expensive, but they're gonna help use your thread wrapped around the outside of the bobbin that'll slow it down but the one thing i'm always trying to teach my students is that when you're holding a bobbin it's going to be between your ring finger and the meat of your thumb and if you squeeze those together you're going to apply pressure to the bobbin and the spool and when you wrap that's going to prevent thread from coming out so you do 10 wraps and each wrap you're getting closer and closer to the hook shank and then you pull the bobbin back with your hand released from the spool and 10 inches of thread comes out and then you wrap, 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 wrap and it all goes away and then you pull the bobbin back. Only add what you need and as you add it tightly, things are gonna latch down much better, much cleaner and it's gonna make your fly last much longer. If there's one thing that novices don't do, it's applied tension. And then all the material goes everywhere and they've got a, they're covered in flash and hackles and it's just a mess. You need to practice that tension. If you've got a pedestal base and you use enough tension, you can lift the bottom of the base off under the hook point. If you break your thread, you know you've done enough on that tension. Unless you hook the hook point or you go across a piece of rough cut bead chain and that's going to cut you. We learned that from Tightline Productions, you can file down the edge of your bead chain. Hold your bobbin properly. That little tip of it where the thread comes out, that's not where your fingertips go. Your thumb and index finger want to hold that little brass piece in the middle. It looks like a little wrap of brass, like a little brass bandage over it. And that's going to be at the junction of the tube and the handle sides of the bobbin on the thread. Hold there with your thumb and index finger. Use your ring and the meat of your thumb to squeeze the bobbin. Proper holding. All right, I'm glad you got that. Practice between classes. Don't forget what you're going to do. My girlfriend's students have to practice their guitar between each lesson. Otherwise, they're not progressing. If you're not doing what you're being taught by your teacher in between, it's not doing you any good. And I try to do that with my kid with decimal places and fractions all the time. I don't ever need to learn fractions. I'm like, well, good luck making that Dolly Parton cake last night. It's pretty good. Dolly Parton's got like coconut cream cake. It's pretty fantastic. Uh, another huge one. Wrap in the same spot always. Don't do three wraps next to each other and make it look like a Bengal tiger. You want to have every wrap in the same spot. If you're tying a glow bug, every wrap has to be in the same spot or you're going to make a janky looking fly. When you tie down a piece of marabou, 
all wraps have to be in the same spot when you're latching something down. Rubber legs on a Chernobyl Ant or a Jumbo John have to be in the same spot. Don't wrap up and down, left and right, back and forth if you're trying to put something latched to the hook. It's just not going to work. And it just got dark out. I'm really hoping it rains because my garden's going crazy. I've got 16 pepper plants, 16 zucchinis, squash, tomatoes, peas. It's going to be awesome. Come by. Buy some flies, pick them up. I'll give you a zucchini. Don't poke yourself with the point of your hook. People do it all the time. I still do it all the time. I've been doing this for more than half my life. I poke myself every time I go in. You can put a little piece of balsa wood on there. You can stick a broken off piece of a wooden match. You could put an eraser nub on it. You could put a piece of wax on the hook point. Like if you had braces back in the day and they grew to wax your foot up here in your mouth, you could do that. You don't want to put the hook all the way in where the hook point's not sticking out. I already told you why that's a bad idea. Be careful with that hook point. Store your materials properly. If you've got animal stuff, don't keep it near your pets. Don't keep it in damp places. Keep it airtight. You might want to put mothballs or cedar in it. Keep your stuff clean and organized so when you show up to your class with your stuff or you're traveling with it, it's easy to handle. Have your threads in one spot, your chenilles in one spot, your marabou in one spot, your beads in a little holder and your hooks in a little holder. I do Ziploc bags for everything. I keep marabou in a bag like my marabou bag. Store your stuff, make it easy, make it clean. It's gonna make your life easier. It took me years before I figured out peg hooks on my wall is the only way to go for storing most of my material. Your proportions often aren't gonna be correct. You're gonna tie in your woolly bugger tail and it's gonna be twice the length of your hook and it's just gonna look weird. Your pheasant tail is gonna be too long. Your clouser is gonna be too short. It's the proportions and keeping things based on the hook shank, length, and gap, and what organism you're trying to make. Your woolly bugger tail should be the length of your hook. The pheasant tail, if you wanna go classic, is uh, you wanna just measure the gap in the hook and that's how long the tail is gonna be. Natural materials, when you tie them in too long, don't often look good when you cut them. If you're tying something synthetic like a comet and you've got a crystal flash tail, it doesn't matter where you cut it, you're gonna be fine. It's like my garflies. If they're not eating a seven inch fly, you cut it down and make it into a four inch bluegill. It still looks the same because it's synthetic. I got new garfly tying material, it's gonna be amazing. Uh, thank you, Texas folks, for buying them. I uh, hope you guys are doing really well. I got pictures of a huge bass caught on one last year. Don't put tools down and have to look for them. I already went over that. Me, I'm gonna need reading glasses soon. And a lot of restaurants just keep a drawer of reading glasses for people that can't read the menu. If you can't MacGyver it and take your glass of water and put it next to a menu to magnify it, you don't have the good skills. But you can't do that with fly time material because you need to be holding scissors and bobbins and everything. And again, Bill Skelton will hold two pairs of scissors in one hand with a bobbin. It's amazing. So you're going to get old. Your eyes aren't going to work. I don't know where your class is being taught, but I guarantee you the light's going to suck. And if you forgot your glasses, you're not going to be able to see. Carry some one, two, and three X dollar store cheap reading glasses with you in your kit. And they're going to come in handy at some point.
Another one, if you have to look for the tool to thread your bobbin every time you break your thread, you're gonna be looking for a tool and not tying. Cut the thread cleanly with your scissors, gently put the tip of the thread into the bobbin tube and then suck the tip of it and the thread comes through. It sounds like this. Yeah, and it works. And I don't have to find a tool. Most of them are tiny. It's just two pieces of wire. Uh, mine have a big orange bead on them. I still can't see that on my desk. And I never want to use that to begin with because it's easier to cut it. And then I'm not putting my tools and stuff really down. I can still hold my scissors. Suck the thread. I guarantee everybody who's come to Beer Tie has tied with bacon cheeseburger flavored scented bobbin tips. Sometimes your thread's going to be too thin. Don't start tying a clouser with 8-aught. You want to tie it with 210 denier. Don't start tying midges with 210 denier. It's going to be too thick. So make sure your thread is the right diameter for what you're doing. If you want the thinnest and strongest thread, you want to get the Nano Silk by Semperfly. You can't cut it by pulling it apart with your hands. It'll cut you. This stuff is super thin and extremely, extremely strong. But again, I use 6 aught uni and i use 210 denier by danville and that's pretty much it in four to five colors you're wrapping too many times in the same spot you only need to wrap three times in one spot to latch something down and if you're doing it correctly with the right type of tension it's gonna work i learned that from a guy who was tying salmon flies at northern virginia trout unlimited like 23 years ago and he was tying these salmon flies and he said it would take him 24 hours to tie some of them and that he was tying a jock scott fly and he got a phone call that his friend died and he left it untied and then he went back to it years later and started tying it and got a phone call that another friend of his had died and he said he was never going to tie a jock scott again crazy but i remember of all things he talked about that night three wraps is all it needs you're wrapping too many times up and down your shank if i say if I say start your thread at the eye of the hook and then go down the shank towards the point, three wraps is all it takes. You don't need to do tiny micro covering up every single nanometer of that hook shank. You don't need to make consistent wraps going down. You just want to go one, two, three, four, and you're down there. They're wide. They're going to hold. It's going to save you time and it's going to save you just thread. Now, if I'm putting down a piece of mono or thread for an articulated hook behind it, I'm gonna make sure every single wrap. When I do my thread or whatever it is, fire line for my intruders, yeah, you're darn right. Every one of those wraps is gonna count as I go back down and up because I want it locked to the hook. I'm not doing it to move back and forth. You wanna just skip up and down when you have to. Too much dubbing is another thing you're doing. When you pinch your dubbing, cut that in half and then cut that into half and start with that. People just want to use a whole lot of dubbing. It's no less than what's inside your belly button right now from the shirt you're wearing. And that's all you need. It's just a little bit. You don't want to crowd that body. You're not making a juicy bug. You're making an ephemeral bug. A tiny little cigar-shaped thorax and abdomen. You're also just using too much material in general. When I say only pinch a matchstick's width, a wooden matchstick again, that's all you need of polar flash for the tail and people just grab it by their index finger and their thumb and grab a pencil's thickness. That's just way too much. I have to carry wooden matches with me in my tying kit when I go to the bar 
so I can show people exactly what I mean. I can't say you want exactly seven pieces of crystal flash. I can't say you need 42 pieces of polar flash, but only if it's the UV one. The other one requires 36. You're gonna find recipes that call for that stuff. That's not my game. Grab a little bit and roll it in between your fingers to get it all nice and tight. Square off the tip and tie it in. You only wanna have a little bit of that sticking out of your thumbs when you tie it in. You wanna have it nice and clean and squared off. You don't want a quarter of an inch sticking out from your thumb. You want just a little bit. If you're using too much tension, you're gonna break your thread. You're gonna know when that happens. Carry a little trash bin with you. Anything that you can use to clean up where you're being taught is gonna be awesome. You don't wanna to go to a restaurant and have a pint of beer and get marabou in it like you do at my house. There's fly time material everything and everything and everywhere in my house. But a bar should not have things. The old bar Whitlow's, you would drop a hook on the floor and people would take out their phone lights and go under the tables and chairs and you would see something from six months ago and you're like, dude, they did not clean under these tables once. And you would know because it's not things that are heavy, like purple marabou from February when we tied Mardi Gras colored flies and now it's July. Why is there still lofty little feathers under there? It was gross. Don't try to buy the generic of something if it doesn't work. That goes back to craft stores and thrift stores and dollar stores. Not everything that is sourced at those stores is equally sourced at a fly shop. Things may melt. Things may just break on you. Things might just be a lemon. Also, ugly flies catch fish. Example that fly I tied before I came up here to record this from my office. That's an ugly looking game changer. But when it's wet, when it's three feet underwater and it's going through weeds and low light, the fishes are gonna check it out to make sure that it's got perfectly aligned scales, a lateral line, a little spot of red under its gills, and that it's perfectly segmented along its you know, vertebrae. I just want that thing to move in the water and they're gonna eat it. The simplest fly you could tie is a thread midge, which will catch all your winter trout in the first 200 feet below a dam in Colorado all winter, or a killer bug. It's a couple wraps of copper wire and a couple strands of yarn, and that's it. It's buggy, it's not ornate, it's not pretty, and your first flies are gonna be like that. They are not gonna look like the instructor's flies. The instructor, like myself, should give you some of theirs to take home as an archetype to look at, you just got even darker out outside. It's like someone's dimming the light out there. And they're just going to be ugly, but fish them. As long as they don't fall apart, they're going to catch fish. Don't be discouraged at what they look like. Sometimes when I come up with a pattern, it takes 10, 15, 20 of them to where I want to use them with clients or sell them online. Think about my first iterations of the cicada. They were stupid and ugly and they worked. Don't use lousy feathers you come across. If somebody shot a bird, if they didn't clean it properly and, and debug it and sterilize it, it's just no good. Don't pick up poop-covered feathers at the zoo. There's poop on them. Just don't pick up nasty chicken coop feathers and other things when you're out because you think it's a good idea. It has to be taken care of properly. Like I cut a fox's tail off one night coming home from Bennigan's which is where every guide and employee at Orvis Tyson's used to hang out back in the day. They're the best chicken fingers in Northern Virginia. And I saw a dead fox freshly killed, took out my spider coat, cut the tail off, was completely grossed out by it, 
and I didn't do anything but stick it in my parents' garage, and it just got eaten by bugs or something. I never got to tie foxy clousers. Uh, your vice might be backwards or upside down. If you're sitting across from your instructor, everything you're doing is going to be backwards. Just a heads up. So make sure that the handle of the regals on the opposite side of you, make sure that the hook point is face up. Just make sure your vice, don't be embarrassed if you get there and everything is backwards and we were all there once. Remember the first time you try to drive a car and you just hit the brakes and it was awful? It's like your first fly time. I can get in my car now and I don't even think about it. Don't waste material. Again, I have to tell you, if you're cutting something off of chenille, don't cut eight inches of chenille or estaz off of your spool, your skein. Hold that whole thing in your hand and wrap from it like someone that's knitting. They're not gonna cut 20 feet of yarn and knit it. They're gonna knit it from the ball. Otherwise, you're just left with odd bits and ends. And I collect them and I give them away. I might just put them up on Etsy, like $2 for this whole bag of bits and pieces and ends. Because I have all sorts of random things that I might not be able to use, but someone else might. And you might get inspiration from your garbage. Stone, if you're listening to me, that was your advice one night. Okay, cheap things also you don't want to buy. Um, don't buy a cheap vice that's going to fall apart or be too difficult to open. Don't buy the cheapest UV cure you find on the market. I prefer Solar Ez. Don't buy the cheapest, crappiest scissors you come across. Get a nice pair of scissors. You can go to the craft store and get Fiskars. You'll become a scissor nerd when you start doing this. I have different scissors for everything, length, sharpness, curvature, and serration. Buy yourself nice scissors. Don't buy cheap thread, it's gonna break. Don't get dollar store thread. Misty gave me a whole pack of six odd thread that if you sneeze, it's gonna break. You can have those at beer tie if you want, just hit me up. Don't buy cheap materials, and again, don't just buy cheap hooks you find at some Bass Pro Shops or Kmart or thrift store. Hooks, you know, they can go bad. If they're not made right, they could rust, they could bend, they could break. Who knows? Just buy good hooks. Start off getting your hooks from Fly Shack in New York. Get the Sabre brand. They're under $8 for 100 hooks, and I've had two of them bend. And those are on like steelhead and catfish. Big, big fish. That's it for my round one of suggestions for a novice tire. Things you should know is a teacher. If you're going to teach flies at a bar or at a, a club somewhere, wherever. Wear a bright colored shirt so the flies stand out against you. My problem is I'm a messy dude and I get things on my clothes. So I got to wear a lot of dark or I wear tie dyes. The girlfriend has started realizing this and she's buying me things that have like checkered patterns and, and other things that you can't see food on. I have a Lefty Cray Deceiver shirt. It's like an Aloha shirt with Lefty's Deceivers and it's got guacamole on it and you can't even tell. I don't know where it is. You wanna have something bright on the table or under the vices. I carry a big white beach towel. I put that on the table at the bar. Everything shows up against it. When we're done for the night, I wrap it all up with the garbage, bring it home, shake it off into my big garbage bin and it's cleaned off for the next time. If you don't have that, just bring a piece of printer paper and put it under each person's vice. Same goes for tying at home. Put a big piece of white foam, a cork board, something bright under your desk. My desk is spray painted white. Don't teach in a dimly lit bar. 
You know, that, that's my advice. I've been doing it for a long time now. And if you drop things, you can't see it. You can't see the materials. You can't see where to wrap. It's just, it's just awful. You don't want to go to a bar with bright lights because you're going to talk to people you don't want to talk to. If it was dark, you'd talk to them. And uh, it's the opposite for fly tying. So holding a fly tying event at a bar on a budget with perforated tables in very dimly lit places for years was not the best. And that also gives you reason to buy a pedestal versus a clamp because not every table where you're teaching is going to be accommodating to a C-clamp vice. The basic tools you want to carry, uh, if I'm teaching 10 people, I've got 14 pairs of scissors, 14 pairs of bobbins, uh, three hackle pliers, two whip finishers, and one threading tool. And then I'm going to carry like an Allen wrench kit to make sure I can tighten anybody's vices that are there. And that's usually it. And I'm going to have scissors of varying sizes because you're going to get people with teeny hands and then you're going to get people with giant hands. So the scissors need to be varied in size. And if you're a shop, you should already have this in your kit. If you're someone like me, uh, it's usually just my stuff that goes to the bar. I'd say 90% of what goes to beer ties, my materials and my tools. Have everything laid out in front of you like a surgeon or a chef. Have your, you know, in the order it's going to go in, you're going to have your hook for a woolly bugger. We're going to tie a beadhead woolly bugger. You're going to have your bead, your hook, your bobbin with thread on it. Then you're going to have your tail material, your hackle, and your body material. That's all you need for a, a basic woolly bugger. And if it's laid out, you can go one, two, three, and knock it out. Have a sample fly finished ready for people to check out. Have several of them. When I get to the bar, I've got to warm up myself. So I'm going to sit down and knock out a couple of the flies we're tying that night. And then I'm going to just lay them out or put them in little fly holders on the table or in little plastic boxes for people to check out. And then at the end of the night, those go home with people. And most of the flies I tied go home with people. If you've got artistic skills and you want to just draw basic diagrams, do that. Draw a basic hook diagram and just label it eye, shank, bend, point. That's all they need to know on a basic hook. Or you could do step by step. There are plenty of resources online that have step by steps on how to tie flies. Charlie Craven's site is probably the most well known. Use it. I use it all the time when we're at beer tie. Pull up Craven's site and people bookmark it. People are going to destroy your tools and materials if you're bringing your stuff. I've learned that. I don't bring my best scissors. People drop scissors and the tips hit the ground. So we're not using my best scissors. We're not always using the, the nicest bobbins. If somebody consistently cannot get tension when they're wrapping, I will give them one of my right bobbins. We're going to mostly be using my just surplus of materials that I've been collecting over the years. And I don't want people just butchering things, cutting it in the right and wrong spot. So be prepared. People are going to just take your marabou and just go to town on it. They're not going to go through feather by feather looking for the most ideal feather for palmering a, a hobo. And they're not going to look for the most wispy looking one for a woolly bugger's tail. They're just going to grab one and cut a chunk out of it. They're going to basically be like Darla holding Nemo in a bag in Finding Nemo. That's the kind of just aggression and... I don't want to say careless list, but not paying attention to what they're doing. Don't do anything complex. Keep it simple. Minimal ingredients. Big flies that you can teach. 
If people drop them, you want people to be able to find them. If people can't see, you want them to be able to see large things. You remember those old phones back in the 90s that had the huge buttons on them? We would call them drunk phones for people in college because they couldn't hit the buttons. Big things are just easier to see. If you've got the capabilities to put a camera or a GoPro and feed it to a screen or a monitor, do that so people can see what you're doing. Zoom in because I'm not gonna be able to see what you're doing usually across the table to help you. But if you can see what I'm doing, it's much, much easier. Don't do anything too small. It's just gonna happen. People are just not gonna be able to see tiny hooks. They're gonna drop them. They're not gonna have the dexterity yet in their fingertips for holding small things. Don't assume a simple pattern is easy to teach. I tried to teach the teeny nymph once, Jim Teeny, T-E-E-N-Y. First fly I tied when I was figuring this out. And one of them is still in my first fishing vest. Uh, I think that's in the carport right now. Very simple fly. It is just a piece of pheasant tail wrapped down a hook and sticking out at an angle. People couldn't do it. There's some patterns that just don't work for people. And you might have to find that out the hard way. I don't teach that anymore. I teach you know seven or eight basic patterns and I'll go through them in a moment, but make it simple. Just assume people are not gonna have the dexterity, the visual aptitude for symmetry and some things that look super simple are difficult. Start people off with a San Juan worm or a killer bug, two things that are two materials only. Teach people how to conserve material. Art likes to cut the corner out of his bag of dubbing and just pull out a little piece at a time rather than pulling a chunk out and working from it. Cut things neatly, consistently. Show people how to do this. Show people how to treat the material with respect. Give them history of the material. Tell them where it came from. But while they're cutting it, make sure they're not wasting it. Don't have someone just cut a piece of Estaz in the middle of a three-yard stretch. What was the point of that, dude? Take a bright light with you. Teach under a bright light. Do you need to have bright lights when you're tying flies? Just straight up. That's what you need to do. You need to have something for people's flies to go in. You need to have little envelopes, little plastic containers from a fly shop. I don't know if I've discussed this already, but it's extraordinary how many little zipper zip bags I go through a year as a fly tire. And I collect them and I save some and I bring those to beer tie to get rid of. But those things will just stack up. I just had a fly order where I got this big bag of marabou. And um, I got so many bags on my shelf right now from all those materials. I wish we could send them back, or I don't know what to do with them, but we should be able to send them back, upcycle, or do something. And so, if you are going to teach them basic freshwater, saltwater, topwater, wet fly, nymphs, this is what you should be teaching. Again, to start off, warm up, San Juan worm, but you got to deal with flames when you do that, so be careful and a killer bug. Killer bug, I mean, it's the simplest thing. You just can't get the original thread. Look on eBay, it's $300 a yard if you can find it for Chadwick's 477, I think is what it is. Uh, when you wanna step up to your next fly, it's gonna be a woolly bugger and make it a beadhead woolly bugger. And you can start with a synthetic one first if you don't want people to have to worry about angles of natural hackle. It's just four materials if you're doing it with a bead. And then from there, uh, 
you know, a nymph, a basic nymph. You could do a brassy, but one that's just ridiculously easy and catches everything is is the uh, the Rainbow Warrior. It's just pheasant tail, mylar, and a bit of dubbing and a bead. That's it. Super easy to tie. And if you buy that to teach a class, those materials will last you a long time. You could tie a lot of Rainbow Warriors with one pack of scud dubbing and one pack of mylar and one pack of a pheasant tail, a single pheasant tail. So those are pretty easy to do. I like to teach those. And then for the summer patterns, and I'm teaching based on the season of the tidal Potomac. So this time of year, it's a foam bug because we want to teach something simple, a Chernobyl ant. It's a cut out piece of foam and four rubber legs tied to a hook. That's simple. A caddis fly is next, an elk hair caddis, one of the greatest flies of the last century of all time. It's going to be maybe a dove body, maybe some hackle, and then some elk hair. Quite simple. Very easy to tie. Just have to have the hair stackers with you. If you want to start doing other terrestrials, another one that's stupid easy is a foam beetle. If you don't have legs, it's just a strip of foam. And then we're always going to do a clouser minnow, and that teaches people how to tie on dumbbell eyes. It teaches them how to sort natural bucktail, how to do counter shading on a fly, and how to tie an inverted fly. But most importantly, it's that skill of learning how to tie dumbbell eyes. Everything is going to eat a clouser minnow. You need one one inch long and four inches long, and that's really the only flies you're ever going to need. Other flies I'll do, turkey feather flies in Thanksgiving time. We do orange egg flies usually in Halloween. An egg fly, super easy. An Estaz egg, one material. McFly foam egg, one material. Sucker spawn, one material. There are some very basic and easy patterns and more colorful gets more people excited. And then when you want to branch off, you can teach people how to tie earring flies. And that's about where I'm going to leave it. That's my notes from over a dozen years of teaching people how to tie flies from my perspective and from somebody that grew up sitting at the Trout Unlimited table when this dude Mike used to teach flies when I was a kid and that's how I learned to tie parachutes and then I went out and my girlfriend and I found a dead squirrel and cut the tail off with pliers and cleaned the tail and started tying squirrel parachutes it was gross I'm not cut out for that but that's where I'm going to end it Thank you for downloading the podcast. If you have questions, hit me up, rob at robsnowwhite.com. If you want to book a trip, go to my website, robsnowwhite.com, fill out a forum. If you want to buy flies and support this podcast, let me know. I told you this. When you fill out you know, a message, I'll throw in some extra flies or materials if you want. Let me know. If you found this on the podcast and you bought flies for me, I would like for you to let me know. If you want to record an album or if you want to record an audiobook, go to producer Jason's website. It's all linked on the podcast, on social media, and that's about it. It's going to rain. Um, we haven't had mosquitoes all year, and now we have mosquitoes. You can walk around barefoot. I mean, it's so dry. I haven't mowed my lawn for three weeks, and I haven't seen a worm in my garden until today for three weeks. It's been so dry. So that's it for the end of June. Let's hope there's some crazy adventures coming up for the rest of the summer. We're going to keep you up to date with all the adventures. And I got some nerdy life histories of fish coming up. Stay tuned. Stay safe. Wear your life jacket. Debarb. And we kept this just about one hour like I told you.
Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com.